Okay, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by my special guests, Todd Caslow, Darren Fields, and Megan Ford with Caslow and Fields LLC, the collection specialists. So hey, say hello, guys. Hello. Hello, everyone. Okay, so Caslow and Fields is located right here in Baltimore, so they're a bunch of Baltimoreans like we are. Uh, as you know, Surety Today is offered only to in-house claims professionals and is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. We appreciate your support and ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in. And I have to give a special shout out to uh, Sue Carlin at ICW because she has referred probably over a dozen people to uh, Surety Today. And so uh, I want to thank you very much for that, Sue. And next time you're in Baltimore, Todd will be happy to take you out for dinner. Uh, I'm kidding. I'll be happy to take you out to dinner. I did a little, um, also I did a little end of the year checking. And since we started Surety Today, we have given out over 400 pins. And in 2008 alone, we had almost 500 Surety Claims handlers from 28 different Surety companies call in. So thanks so much for all that support. We really appreciate that. We also ask that you like and or share our Surety Today posts on LinkedIn or Twitter. We, uh, we really want to build up a following on those social media platforms. So if you could help us out, that'd be great. Uh, if you miss a presentation, and I cannot understand how you could possibly miss a presentation, but if some crazy, fluke, world-ending, mind-bending event happens and you have to absolutely, positively cannot make the presentation, well, you're in luck because you can listen to any prior presentation on multiple locations. We have a Surety Today page on our uh, firm website at WCSLaw.com. We have uh, the prior presentations as podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Just search for Surety Today and also on our microsite at suretytoday.net. So if you have any um, suggestions for topics or improvements, please let us know. You know, we've been at this for a long time and you know, we've covered a lot of topics, but and I'm sure there's more to, to cover, so let us know if you have any thoughts on that. We've muted the line, as always, during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Um, and also today, we'll be taking questions anonymously during the presentation by email. So if you have a question, email it to me at mstover at wcslaw.com and we'll try to get it answered you know, either during the presentation or at the end. Um, so today we, we are going to talk about salvage and collection and fortunately we have the big dogs of collections with us. So uh, Todd, I want to turn to you first and, and, and have you tell us about the services that Caslow and Fields offers and the, the role that you all play in the surety industry. Well, thank you, Mike, and, and thanks to uh, Wright Constable and Skeen for having us today. We really appreciate the fact that you're involving us in these um, podcasts, which uh, are very useful. I think it's great um, that you offer this, and it's a good way for people and for companies to uh, keep expenses down but continue educational uh, programs like this. And, um, you know, with today's technology, it's far-reaching, and, it, and I think it's a great avenue for this type of discussion. So we thank you for having us. Um, what we do, and again, I'm hoping that most of you 
know what we do. If, if not, I haven't done my job very well over the last 18 years or so. But just to reiterate, for those who may not be sure of who we are and what we are, we provide collection and recovery services for sureties um, in all 50 states. We do it for a contingency fee. We also do fidelity, subrogation, and some premium collection along with um, <clears throat> the service we provide for uncollected deductibles on the insurance side. And those are very specialized areas. We really specialize in the surety. Oh, I'll get into our backgrounds in a minute, but we've, uh, in fact, when we started this company, our original name was Surety Recovery Management. And our goal was to basically, to serve a few different roles. Uh, we can be, for some companies, we are their salvage or recovery department. For other companies, we are uh, a, an outlet for overflow. Um, and uh, if they have their own department, we can supplement those in-house services. But as the years have gone by, we've noticed that companies uh, don't want to spend the money on the in-house groups as much as they used to. Um, I started the business last week with my 35th anniversary in this business, and just about half of my career, a little over 17 years, was spent in-house uh, doing surety claims and recovery. And uh, the trend started many years ago, uh, and we think we were ahead of the curve on that. And basically, uh, the, we saw this opportunity when we started the company, Darren and I, 18 years ago. Uh, again, I was handling surety claims for about 17 years. Darren was in-house at a firm here in Baltimore handling a lot of surety recovery. Then he came in-house with me when we were at St. Paul, which at that time was the number one surety in the world in terms of premium. Of course, now it's travelers. Um, and we uh, tried to put in place the kind of technology and tools that we knew were unavailable in-house. Uh, so what we've tried to do is build that experience both in-house and outside of the company to provide the best service possible. Megan, who will be speaking later, Megan Ford, has been with us 11 years as an attorney. We're all, all three of us are licensed as attorneys in Maryland, but we have a staff of total of 12 people, and we are set up as a collection agency so that we can do this in all 50 states. Um, so we like to say we operate like a collection agency, but we think like lawyers. Um, and um, again, you'll hear from Megan Ford later on in the uh, discussion when she talks about her managing uh, litigation around the country because if a case does require litigation, we continue with the matter. Okay, so so, um, so Caslow and Fields, does it also do, you know, you got these third-party outside claim service people. Is that something you all do as well? The answer is no. Uh, we we um, said from the start that our philosophy was that if you're going to do recovery, you have to do recovery only. Claims always take precedence over recovery, and it takes your attention away from the task at hand. So we started out with that pledge, 
and we've kept it over the last 18 years. We will not provide any claim services, and um, we've never we never have. Uh, but what we do to focus on just recovery, we have built in systems and tools that we don't believe others have, uh, especially the in-house folks, um, because of our agility, because we're small, and our ability to go out to the marketplace and find what we need. So we have investigation tools that Darren's going to talk about. We have collection software, which is uh, very helpful in tracking our activity, the financial aspect of this, um, which is critical. And we. We have been collecting data for the last 18 years, uh, over thousands of cases. We have some very interesting reports and data that we collect, and we use that in terms of our strategy going forward. Uh, so like I said, we do this on a contingency fee basis in all 50 states. Um, and we also provide these investigation services, uh, which I did not mention earlier. And I must say there's a tie-in here with Wright Constable because one of Mike's former partners, Bob Wright, is the one who gave us the idea to offer that investigation service separate from our contingency fee. So if we're not handling a contingency fee matter or matter on a contingency for recovery, we still provide investigation services like asset and liability reports to counsel such as Mike. But the original idea came from is a highly respected and legendary partner, Bob Wright, so I must mention that. Uh, but not all cases are for us. You know, larger, complex cases where you're handling claims at the early onset of a matter and that you might have Mike Stover and Wright Constable attorneys involved in, it may not be the kind of case for us, maybe un until later when they actually receive a judgment. So um, we're very busy with miscellaneous commercial surety, contract surety, where the cases are paid and where there is not the involvement of an attorney like Mike Stover. Um, so sureties, they each use us in a different way, and we can mold and tailor our services to the situation. Small, medium, and the larger sureties use us, and I believe right now we're working for 13 of the top 25 sureties. So they use us in different ways. Um, and so that is our introduction, and I know Darren is going to get into a little bit more detail about some of the things I touched on, especially concerning the tools that we use here to gain the upper hand on the indemnitors and the debtors. Right, right. So, Darren, tell us about some of the things that drive success with recovery. You know, how do you get, what, what are the tools and what are the processes that really, uh, really work? We're still trying to figure that out, Mike. <laughs> uh, uh, fortunately, uh, it figured a little bit out over, over 18 years. Uh, and, you know, there are probably a few things that we emphasize uh, over everything else in our, our daily processes and our operations. Uh, one is just information, uh, just, you know, gathering as much information as possible and making sure that we use it and use it intelligently. Um, you know, we make an effort to uh, begin gathering information right from the outset when a matter is assigned to us. Uh, one of the first things that we do uh, is 
uh, look for contact information uh, for the people, the principal and the indemnitors uh, that we intend to make demand on. Uh, because often when we get the file, as, as you'd expect, the underwriting information at that point is stale at best. Um, it could be, have been years since the, the, the program was underwritten. So we're looking for mailing addresses and phone numbers and email addresses uh, that are up to date so that we don't waste a month or two or three uh, sending letters to bad addresses and making calls to bad numbers. Uh, we also are uh, you know, scrubbing these files for bankruptcies and deaths uh, to make sure that if there's a bankruptcy, you know, we don't violate the automatic stay and that we're filing whatever um, we might need to file on the client's behalf. And obviously, if someone has passed away, same thing, we're not wasting time. Uh, and also, maybe there's an opportunity to pursue uh, claim in an estate. Uh, and then certainly, right from the outset, we are looking at their assets and liabilities. Uh, we are oftentimes pulling uh, credit as well um, when we're permitted to. And then as the file matures, you know, we're constantly updating that asset and liability information uh, so that we have the kind of information we need to make good decisions. Uh, I will note, you know, we do ask uh, the, the debtors to provide financials as well as, as most everyone does, tax returns, bank statements, et cetera. Uh, but I will say we mostly rely on the information that we develop uh, when making decisions. We think it's more reliable, for one. Um, we all know that uh, the, the information provided by uh, the debtors is driven out of self-interest. Uh, and oftentimes, it's really slow and it slows things down. Our clients, they want to be paid quickly. Um, so uh, that's just an aside. You know, and how we use that information uh, probably no great surprise, but you know we use it when looking at settlement offers. Uh, we look at that information uh, when trying to decide whether to file suit. Uh, we look at it when we're trying to decide whether to close the file. You know, many times we're sort of at the end of the line and we have to make that decision as to whether we move forward. And we certainly use the information, as Megan will talk about in just a bit, uh, in determining how we should go about enforcing a judgment um, that we might have attained or a client might have. Obtained. Uh, another point of emphasis for us, and probably the primary one, is making contact with the debtors, making contact with the principal and debtors. You know, our feeling is that if we are not having conversations with those folks, we're not very likely to be successful. You know, long gone are the days where a letter or two, you know, making demand on them was good enough and you might expect to get some return on that. Uh, that just doesn't happen very often anymore. Uh, so we feel like if we're not talking with them uh, in a, in a two-sided conversation, we're not likely to collect. Uh, so we, we, you know, we go about doing that a couple of different ways, making contact. We try a lot. Um, we are reaching out to them all the time. Uh, I would say, you know, in the first 60 days of, uh, you know, lifespan, we are probably touching uh, the file and reaching out to them at least a couple of dozen times and oftentimes more. Um, and that goes equally for situations where we've contacted them and others where we haven't. Um, if we haven't reached them, we just keep on trying. Uh, but the other way, uh, I think, and the reason why we are successful in talking with most people, and we are, we reach most people, uh, is because we use a number of methods. We use basically every channel that's available to us uh, to talk with people and give them the opportunity to talk in a way that's most comfortable for them. So you know, that includes letters. 
uh, for sure. They still have a place. Uh, emails, we send a lot of emails. There's no question about it. We have a lot of conversations via email. Uh, we still make calls, as, as people would expect from a collection agency in particular. We make a lot of calls. Uh, but I'll say we have, we have less success uh, than we had 5 and 10 and certainly 20 years ago. Uh, we recently began using uh, online chat. Uh, and I think our expectation is that is something that will continue to trend upward in the coming years. Uh, and last but not least is uh, text messaging. And this one probably surprises a good number of people when we mention it. They didn't realize that was something that we did or could do. Um, but we can and we do, and we do it a lot. Um, and I will say that really is the trend uh, we know in sort of you know, in America, people at this point prefer to chat or, or text, I should say, rather than uh, make calls. And just as an aside, I sort of have uh, a few statistics, a few numbers that I just want to throw at you, Mike, that sort of illustrates uh, how valuable text messaging can be. Um, and I, I promise it won't take long. But 81% uh, of Americans text every single day. Uh, Americans text twice as often as they make calls. 64%, so roughly two-thirds of Americans prefer text messaging over phone calls when they need service of any kind. And this, I think, is um, these, these, the next few stats are high openers. 99% of text messages are open. And 90% of text messages are open within three minutes. So going back to that, um, you know, you'd like to create a sense of urgency, and that certainly helps to do it. Uh, and this might be the most staggering one uh, that illustrates uh, the trend, again, towards text messaging and away from phone calls. Forty-five percent of text messages get a response, and only 15 percent of phone calls are even answered. So text messaging, crudely speaking, three times more effective in getting a response from someone uh, than a telephone call. Uh, and lastly, and I, I, I will, we'll move on, but the last sort of point of emphasis for us is really education. Uh, we spend time educating ourselves about the law. You know, we everybody here takes time to look through the file and make sure they're prepared to understand why the loss was incurred. Uh, we spend time looking at that information I talked about earlier, um, and in particular uh, looking at information regarding the debtor's financial wherewithal. Uh, and we also uh, take some time to educate ourselves about the debtor's position in regards to, uh, you know, their liability for the loss, uh, meaning, you know, we, we listen to the debtors. And I think we've gotten better and better over the years at doing that. Um, you know, we found it to be successful. You know, people like to be heard, for one. Um, even if what they're saying is ridiculous. Uh, they like to be heard, and it does build a rapport with them. And oftentimes what they're saying is not ridiculous, and we need to hear it and understand it uh, so that we know what hurdles we need to clear. Uh, and then conversely, we spend a good amount of time educating uh, the principal indemnitors about a variety of things. Um, uh, we explain you know, different things to different people. We, Sometimes have to explain the bond. We have to explain suretyship and the role of sureties. Uh, we have to explain the indemnity agreement, and we do that often. Uh, we explain why it is their defenses uh, under the indemnity agreement might not hold water. Uh, and uh, we also explain you know, sort of the benefits of payment. A lot of people understand the liability issues or they don't understand, but they don't bother asking. 
but they need to understand why it makes sense for them to pay, you know, to preserve credit or avoid litigation. Maybe they can get a discount. Maybe there's future bonding involved, um, but we need to spend some time, and we do, educating them about those sort of things also. Right, right. So, so that's kind of like the process and what you guys do and how you go about it. Uh, what, what are some of the, you know, the effective tools that your company is using to, to get recoveries? Yep, uh, I'm glad you asked, Mike. Uh, uh, it, one of the things that it goes back to what I said earlier is information. We have a lot of information databases that we use, uh, both public and private. Uh, I will say I, I love public records. I love public source records because they are uh, certainly the most reliable. They're the most up-to-date. Many of them now are real-time, um, and they're also not subject to some of those uh, retrieval and transcription errors that often come with some of the private uh, subscription databases. Uh, so uh, I, I love public records. It can be a little bit daunting uh, to work through them because you know a lot of that information is housed on a on a county by county basis in New England. It's town by town oftentimes. So you're talking thousands and thousands of databases. Uh, but you know we've been doing it a long time and we have some familiarity with it, so that helps. Uh, but we do like them a lot. Uh, we use private subscription databases also. Uh, they are, I think, especially helpful in finding assets and liabilities in places you'd never think to look. Um, so, you know, we're looking at public records for uh, Bill Smith, who lives in Chicago, but we would never think to look uh, public records in Miami, Florida, or Honolulu, Hawaii, and that's where the private databases can be helpful because they scour, uh, you know, the entire country looking for that sort of information, and they provide some clues as to where we might want to dig deeper. Um, you know, we are pulling uh, contact information from uh, primarily private databases, uh, but also social media. That's what I tell people, you know, don't overlook social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. Uh, it's often surprising how much people will post about themselves in those places. Uh, credit information, we love, we use it all the time. It can only be obtained, of course, from uh, credit bureaus, uh, assuming there's a permissible purpose to do so. Um, real estate information, again, I, I happen to prefer the public source records, uh, but private uh, subscription databases, uh, you know, the Lexuses and Accurance of the World, they're, they're valuable as well, they're useful. Uh, do, uh, we also look for employment, uh, and we have a number of sort of private subscription databases we tap into uh, that are focused entirely on that. Uh, but again, we do use social media uh, to find that information, and we do so with a good amount of, uh, we have success with a good amount of regularity, uh, and as Megan will talk about, that information, if we get it, can be really valuable, particularly post-judgment. Um, and then the other litigation judgments, liens, et cetera, tend to come from both public and private databases. Um, we also have, and I won't spend too much time talking about it, but we also have a specialized collection database that's really the lifeblood of our operation. Todd touched on it earlier. Uh, it is, uh, allows us to be very efficient, allows us to do a lot of the things that I've talked about. Um, you know, so many tasks are just automated for us. Um, so that if we set up the system correctly, these things happen for us, including letter generation, scheduling files for the next task, et cetera. Um, all the information is basically accessible to us on one screen, so we don't spend a lot of time uh, moving from one task to the next or one file to the next. 
uh, and uh, it also helps ensure uh, compliance of our database. You know, it tracks uh, bankruptcies, it tracks all sorts of critical events, deaths, um, settlements, etc., to make sure that we're um, you know behaving in a way that uh, that adheres to all the appropriate state and federal laws, um, and uh, and so on. Uh, and Finally, uh, and this is certainly not least, I think, I don't know if I call it a tool, um, but uh, it, it's fairly similar. We offer, I think it's maybe one of the most important things that we do here, um, it's an advantage we have, is that we're able to offer our debtors the ability to pay us using a variety of different methods and payment forms. Um, so uh, methods meaning how they either get us the payment or get us the payment information to process payment. You know, we, we get that information by telephone, by letter, by email, by fax. We have an online portal that's just ours where people can go on and make their own payments. We invoice. Some people prefer that. We put together invoices. We electronically send them the invoices. They just click on a link, follow the invoice, and they can make payment. Uh, we take pretty much all forms of payment, MasterCard, Visa, American Express, uh, ACA, so if they have a checking account or a savings account, we can do it. They can send in checks, and some people still do. They can send in money orders. They can do wire transfers. Um, you know, they can do pretty much anything they want to do, and we think it's critical. Um, it's just critical to make payment as easy uh, as possible. You know, bearing in mind that there are a lot of people only have access to one type of payment channel. Uh, we have a lot of folks who only have a credit card or a debit card. They have nothing else. Um, so if we didn't offer that option, they would not be paying us. Um, and then there are a lot of people who just have a preference for one over the other. Uh, so we think it's really important uh, that we're, we're able to do that and offer that to them. Uh, I will say very quickly that uh, you know the trend is definitely towards online payments. Uh, and automatic payments. We try to get people to agree to allow us to, uh, you know, hit their account once a month, et cetera. Uh, and just one sort of final stat that I'll throw your way in regards to the online payment trend. Uh, online payments have grown more than 400% uh, since 2013, so in just the last five years, uh, a 400% increase. And uh, I learned uh, that Americans spend 10 to 20% more when they make payment by credit card. Uh, so I said earlier that some folks, it's the only way they could pay us. And if we didn't offer credit card, they would not pay us a penny. But for those folks who have a number of different options, they're likely to pay us more if they pay by credit card for obvious reasons. You know, they, they can borrow, and if they can borrow, they're willing to spend a bit more and pay a bit more than they would if they had to draw it, say, from a checking account. Right, great, great. All right, thanks, Darren. So, Megan, I want to turn to you next. What are some of the factors that, you know, set up a file for success prior to litigation then when you're, when you're going to do recovery? Thanks, Mike. So, the first factor I look at um, is definitely the size of the loss. Our kind of standard is that we don't recommend litigation for losses that are under $25,000. So, if the size warrants um, a review for litigation, the next thing I'll look at is, is kind of the claim file factors, which include the indemnity agreement mostly. So, um, if the indemnity agreement is is witnessed and notarized, that's always a positive factor, and also if the contract is, is clear and legible. So a lot of times we will get um, indemnity agreements that are part of an application 
um, usually for miscellaneous charity uh, bonds, and often those have been faxed and emailed back and forth, and sometimes they're illegible. So I like to look at that just to make sure I know what we're kind of getting ourselves into before we recommend suit. Um, the next thing I'll look at is kind of any liability concerns that have been brought up by the indemnitors during conversations with our recovery analysts, um, any potential disputes they may have, um, and then they'll also usually disclose financial information. So whether the principal is defunct or whether the indemnitors are working, um, if they own real property, maybe they've tried to borrow against equity and they were denied. Um, it's usually great information that they will provide during conversations with um, our people before we decide to review for litigation. And then finally, probably the most important is what Darren talked about, is all of our great investigative tools that we utilize in-house, especially um, the credit reports and then real property searches that we do. The real property obviously is usually the biggest asset that an indemnitor will have, so we spend a lot of time making sure that we have found any and all property that they may have and have a good estimate of what kind of equity is um, in that property. And then I'll take into consideration local jurisdiction uh, rules, such as homestead exemptions. So if someone has a ton of equity and property, but they are in Florida, and Florida is 100% homestead, that will definitely be a factor when um, trying to decide whether to recommend litigation. Right, okay. So. So what are some of the, you know, from the side of the fence that you're working on, you know, going after these, these uh, you know, these accounts, what are the best post-judgment tools that, that really seem to, you know, get you the best results, best settlements? So, right, most of the time we're able to obtain judgment. Um, liability isn't often a factor. And once we obtain, obtain that judgment, that's really when the, the hard work comes in. And we have developed a great panel of local collections attorneys in all 50 states that are really experts in all of the, the local rules and procedures. Um, they just seem to vary so much from state to state, county to county. Every clerk is different on how to request writs, how to serve writs. So having someone local who's an expert in collection and enforcement of judgment has made our job just more efficient and obviously has led to better results. Um, and if it, and it's, it's less expensive in the long run if we have someone local who really knows, knows the lay of the land. So um, probably our biggest success comes out of wage garnishments. People are usually surprised to learn that. But if an indemnitor has you know, been ignoring us, ignoring our calls and texts, and we have maybe obtained a default judgment, and we've served a wage garnishment, that's usually the first time we've heard from them and they are very anxious to take care of the garnishment and settle with us. Um, and that's driven some, some large recoveries. So not only is it just a, an annuity and a garnishment for the future, but they will try to settle the judgment to stop that garnishment as quickly as possible and, and settle the judgment. Um, the next big factor are liens on real property, so I'll definitely review all of the internal investigations that we have and feed that information to our local panel council to make sure that there are liens on every piece of real property that we found in every county. Um, we usually just recommend filing liens on everything and not taking into consideration whether they might be held jointly or are exempt. We just like to kind of cloud title if we're able to um, because that often leads to calls to, to uh, settle the lien upon sale and refinance of those properties. Um, 
And we've had just a lot of luck in jurisdictions where, you know, a lot of people might think are very difficult and impossible to collect. For example, in Florida, you know, many people think that wages are completely exempt. Um, and we have tons of garnishments there because the, home, the, uh, the exemption for wage garnishment is just for the head of household. So single judgment debtors aren't privy to that exemption, and we have great garnishments in place there. Um, we've also had luck in community property states where we're able to garnish a non-debtor spouse who may be working, um, even if they're not an indemnitor, if we've, if we've filed suit against them. Um, we have one in, in uh, Washington State right now against a spouse who works for Boeing, so those have, have really proved successful as well. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you very much, Todd, Darren, and Megan. Um, running a little bit over time, but I'm going to close out here uh, before we open up for any questions and let everybody know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on March 11th at 1230, and I'll be joined by my special guest, Peter Fascia. He's a CPA uh, with uh, Matson, Driscoll, and Damco. They're uh, forensic accountants, and we'll be discussing the accountant's role in surety claims handling. So. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us today. I look forward to speaking with you again next month. Let me uh, open up the lines now for any questions. Participant lines unmuted. Okay, so we've got uh, we've got the collection specialists here. What do we have in the way of questions? Anybody? This is kind of typical. We seem to have a shy crowd, you know. It, it, we, we, we don't get a lot of questions typically, but now's your chance, guys. Okay, well, again, I wanted to thank everybody and, um, and look forward to talking with you again, again next month. Thanks, uh, Todd, Darren, and Megan. Everybody take care.